0: Can we all just get along? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with John Wood Jr. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Sabine Alchidiak your temporary host. Alex is away on break for the month, so I'm filling in. Today I'm speaking with John Wood Jr., John Wood Jr. is a national leader for Braver Angels, the United States' largest bipartisan grassroots organization dedicated to the work of political depolarization. Prior to that, he was a nominee for Congress in California's 43rd District in the 2014 election cycle. John is a highly regarded public speaker on matters of racial and political reconciliation. He's a member of the Progress Network, an initiative of the New America Foundation dedicated to fostering civilizational progress through thought leadership across a wide spectrum of views a field builder with new pluralists a collaborative of organizations dedicated to civic bridge building and racial justice and an advisor with the american project an initiative of the pepperdine school of public policy dedicated to restoring the communitarian roots of conservatism he's also a musical artist and a noted writer and speaker on subjects including racial and political reconciliation John is a wonderful speaker, truly dedicated advocate of depolarization, and a fellow fan of Adam Smith, so just an (laughs) all-around wonderful guy. I'm really excited to have you with me here, John. Thanks for being with us on The Curious Task.
1: Sabine, it's so nice to see you, and it's so nice to be here with you.
0: So John, our question today is, can we all just get along? And we'll be talking about polarization mostly in the United States, although it's become an increasingly bigger issue in Canada too. Uh, to explore this, it's probably best to start with defining what we mean by certain terms and concepts. And mm-hmm. I just want to know, like, what do you mean by polarization and depolarization? And what is the issue surrounding polarization currently in the United States?
1: Mm, yeah, so by polarization, we are really referring to what some people qualify as affective polarization. And so you could have issue-based polarization where the where the matter is that people are so far apart on what a given policy should or should not be that, you know, just, just represents just a, a highly sort of divergent set of perspectives. But affective polarization is far more about our interpersonal feelings towards each other, you know, the breakdown in our relationships with each other, active disdain and animus and distrust on the basis of the differences in our politics, right? And so that's what we seek to counter. And so, you know, in depolarizing, you know, the American um, public and, and political system, the idea is to strengthen bonds of trust and interpersonal relationships really sort of regardless of whether or not we come closer together on the policy issues. I mean, that may very well be a desirable consequence of that. But that itself is not the immediate project for us. The immediate project for us is healing, is healing relationships, not so much reconciling policy positions.
0: Um So how did we get here? You've mentioned in one of your talks that the United States is in sort of a remarkable moment in time. Can you elaborate on that? Why is that and why would you think that?
1: Right. Yeah. Well, so polarization uh, is at a critical place uh, and critical juncture in American life. The degree to which we distrust and dislike one another on the basis of our political affiliations, not just across uh, the the, uh, public uh, conversation uh, generally, but also with respect to our degree of distrust Uh, Between the American public and our prevailing institutions, um, whether it be courts, Congress, White House, church, corporate America, the entertainment industry. um, The the degree of distrust is such that it is destroying our social fabric, our ability to maintain constructive interpersonal relationships, even familial relationships. And it is sabotaging the capacity of organizations and institutions to be able to effectively serve the American people in whatever their domain of activity is. Because each of the institutions, depending on who's running them, depending on what the perception is of the cultural forces that are at work within them, find themselves being players in culture wars wherein they are associated with the given side or they see themselves as needing to take a particular side rather than being essentially sort of neutral servants of a larger public interest, notwithstanding the political opinions of anybody who may be a part of said institution, right? And uh, that is um, incredibly dangerous, of course, because, you know, where there is not trust for institutions, there's no need, there's no, there's very little incentive for people Uh, in or out of the institutions to abide by any standard code of conduct. There's less and less incentive for us to sort of uphold empirical truth as a value or otherwise follow the law. Uh, And, you know, in in a consequence of that, of course, society begins to unravel. But the thing that I think makes these problems uh, sort of exacerbated in a dramatic sort of way is that Polarization has come to this critical point itself as a consequence of, of many things, uh, but some things that are somewhat new in our history so one of those things is sort of the diversification of you know uh, american uh demographics I mean you know we are sort of moving in this direction and perhaps eventually becoming a majority minority country and so forth uh, immigration has sort of increased substantially, but beyond just sort of the the kind of uh, you know uh, horizontal kind of Diversifying of American society, culturally speaking, there's a vertical uh, sort of diversification that's taking place where people who previously had not been as well represented in the upper echelons of American society—whether talking about African Americans, uh, sexual and gender minorities, etc.—now uh, find themselves sort of in positions where they are bringing, I think, and 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 this is not at all necessarily a bad thing in and of itself, mm-hmm. but There are different narratives with respect to American identity, American history, and the norms of civic discourse that are asserting themselves in institutions as a consequence of the fact that new voices are raising up in the academy, in the entertainment industry, in politics. And it's splitting, it's it's laying bare the fact that there are deep differences in how we see each other as a country, how we understand democracy and liberty. Um that are sort of splitting our institutions from the inside, while and this is this is the other sort of existential part of this, while technology uh, and social media uh, to be certain um, find themselves sort of artificially, I think. Uh, enhancing and accelerating the divide as a part of sort of a technological business model that drives clicks, that seeks to sort of capture people's attention so as to monetize it. And that does so on the basis of conflict and and division, you know, and so, I mean, you know, that becomes the business model of technology and it is the business model of political media and also political parties in essence. And so you have all of these sort of, you know, uh, systematic reinforcements of the behavior of polarization, which makes it a very difficult, uh, sort of pattern of, 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 uh, you know, incentive towards conflict, uh, to break. And so that's what makes this, uh, a particularly, uh, unique and difficult moment.
0: So if we don't address the scoring polarization that you're talking about, where could we be headed in your opinion?
1: Well, I think that, um, we are heading for the unraveling of the american democratic uh system in so far as one you know on the love of the social fabric uh we culturally speaking will not be in a position to be able to operate effectively as a society um I think that it's going to be more and more difficult for major institutions. To service the American people broadly speaking, and so what you're going to have and what you're already starting to see is a bit of a soft secessionism, if you will, within the American body politic, where conservatives try and sort of build up their own institutions, as progressives are kind of trying to kick them out uh, in many cases of the prevailing sort of uh, of, of the prevailing institutions. Um, and yet, you know, we are still going to be tied together in a body of law. But that's going to be undermined as we look at the, as the electoral system itself loses credibility with the American people. So, you know, we're in a position in 2020 where, you know, conservatives often, mostly or largely at least, uh, refused to accept the outcome of the election or at least l- largely believed, you know, Donald Trump and others that the election had been stolen. But then in 2016, of course, you had you had vast numbers of people on the left who believed that The election was stolen on behalf of Donald Trump by the Russian government. And of course, that was really the prelude that many of us forget about to sort of the conservative, I think, uh, you know, sort of uh, skepticism with respect to the election results in 2020. So, you know, you push that pattern forward, people don't believe in the legitimacy of American elections, they're not going to believe in the legitimacy of the laws that are upheld by the people who are presumably elected to enforce them and so it becomes a recipe for some degree of uh anarchy i think um and um you know that in turn uh opens the door potentially for violence uh, and so really um the the potential sort of uh spiral downward that can that can that could come about if this pattern is not discontinued um it's it's it is really there's no clear floor to how bad it might it might get now i do think that the better angels of the american people will will kick in but that's but yeah you, you can't take it for granted and so that's that's why we do the work that we do to try and to try and you know ensure the fact that that does indeed happen and that we regain our ability to trust and communicate with each other so that we can restore the legitimacy of the systems again
0: So are there past examples of polarization in North America that we can look back to as an example of how bad it can be and perhaps even to get some uh, indications as to what to do about it?
1: Well, I mean, I can only really speak effectively from an American context and um, United States of America and um, you know, I mean, certainly, you know the Civil War is the great example of you know polarization that got as bad as it could possibly have gotten, and it's an interesting and perhaps in some respects uncomfortable example to cite because you know uh with the Civil War, you know yes, you had sort of the greatest of all um you know uh tragic uh events in American history unfold, but you know, I mean, I think that so many of us would feel that well, you know, but hey, maybe that was a war that. Needed to be fought just because the moral stakes were so high. I mean, we're talking about slavery here. And I think that, you know, what you have happening today is, you know, increasingly many people starting to open their minds to more and more sort of extreme responses to um, wanting to right what they see as the wrongs of American life perpetrated by the other side. Um, If not through violence, then through more and more extreme, um, more and more extreme rhetoric, political actions, uh, and other things that sort of open the door for, for greater sort of chaos and anarchy, just because the alternative to that in the minds of many people, um, is the totalitarianism of the left or or the racism or fascism, uh, of the right, right. Or the collectivism of the left and what have you. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that, um, it's not to say that there's not arguments that people could make for sort of embracing, you know, the combat in some sense, but but those are usually arguments that we make after the consequences of violence have become so far removed into the rearview mirror of our historical experience that we forget just how bad that actually is, how transcendently terrible some of these outcomes can can be. Um, in in the 1960s, of course, we had. An extremely polarized uh, environment in this country, as well, um, over issues of civil rights, over foreign policy matters like the Vietnam War, and the culture wars of the '60s were were intense. But I draw a lot of inspiration in my own work uh, from the nonviolent movement, the example of Martin Luther King Jr. and others uh, who were able to champion social change. In a spirit that was adamantly focused on humanizing the opposition, even as they sought to ultimately articulate, you know, a moral truth and political reforms uh, associated with that, um, that ultimately advanced American society on a legal level uh, for the better, while also strengthening ultimately our ability to understand one another across political and cultural differences. That was a movement whose fruits were ultimately culturally and socially depolarizing. It's not to say that Dr. King was not, you know, in, in many respects sort of a de facto polarizing figure in his own time. I mean, he certainly was very controversial because he was he was seeking radical change, but it was a radicalism that was just as radical in terms of its desire to humanize everybody across the political spectrum, right? And that ultimately came through in that sort of activism. And I think it made it possible for there to be an outcome, outcomes to the civil rights movement that were healing, as opposed to simply, you know, um, what the civil war was, which was, you know, violent and something that even when the civil war was finished, the wounds and the grievances that came out of it were such that, the aftermath of the Civil War was that racism was only more greatly inflamed over the subsequent one hundred years of American history, as well as grievances between the North and the south and you know um, and, and and various other factions you can kind of think of as animated that conflict you know so um, those are two different examples um, that give us i think some some different lessons. We have to be able to advocate for social and political change in America and speak truth as we see it, while also being committed to articulating the need to recognize the the dignity and to 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 emphasizing the humanity of the people we disagree with, to seek reform while also expressing goodwill towards those who disagree with you. Um, That's the work, and um, you know, and we can. Our moment is very unique. But we can see examples of that in the past, including the civil rights movement, uh, the nonviolent movement in particular, and there are others that I think we could think of as well.
0: Great. So we've talked a little bit about the the ideas, the definitions, and before I get into asking you about uh, what we can do to fix the problem potentially a little bit more, can you talk to me a little bit about how and why you got to become such... An advocate for depolarization. I know you have a really interesting story as to how you came to understand the issue and advocate for it. And I'd love to also hear a little bit about what Braver Angels actually does and what you do as a part of it.
1: Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, uh, so I guess to start with my own story, you know, many people sort of have a a bit of a, a road to Damascus moment where they realize that, man, polarization is a real problem that needs to be engaged. I don't think I ever really had a moment like that. My relationship to the work is sort of an outgrowth of my own kind of biography and life experience. Uh, so I'm somebody who uh, comes from a both sort of a, well, from a biracial uh, and a bipartisan uh, family, ultimately. My, I, was, um, I grew up a liberal Democrat, I was an activist uh all you know sort of through high school I gave my first uh political speech uh, opposing the, the the Iraq war uh, the second gulf war uh at the Culver City which is a suburban city in Los Angeles County the Culver City City Council meeting where we passed a resolution uh, opposing the war um I'm somebody who um after working for Barack Obama's campaign just as you know just a canvasser and so forth um somebody who saw a great deal of himself in obama and in the obama campaign mm-hmm. um uh wound up ultimately becoming a republican nominee for for congress yeah. years later and i ran against maxine waters in the 2014 yeah. election cycle um and so when i was running in that campaign you know it was a predominantly left-leaning black and latino district but there are pockets of uh conservatives um in it and so when i was speaking to a black Democratic-leaning church in South Central Los Angeles or a white Tea Party club in South Bay L.A. County, Uh, people would ask, you know, what makes you qualified to represent the district? And I'd say, well, I have a unique family background. My mother's a liberal black Democrat from inner city Los Angeles. My father's a conservative white Republican from Tennessee. I grew up explaining my father to my mother, my mother to my father, and that's why I can represent all of you. My dad didn't actually become a Republican until uh, later in life, but he was always sort of the traditionalist in some respects in our family he was always talking about traditional american values and how american society was so much stronger in the 50s and the 60s and uh, you know it raised me with a bit of southern nostalgia Uh, i grew up with stories you know davy crockett and jim Bowie and so forth you know and, and uh stories of you know my grandparents farms back in tennessee southern life and so forth you know Um, And even to this day, so much of the cultural sort of polarization in American society is kind of a polarization that exists between sort of the South and, and, you know, much of the rest of the country. Um, And, um, you know, so, I mean, I grew up um, sort of at the intersection, if you will, sort of, you know, sort of, sort of southern consciousness southern experience and, and urban experience black and white and my father's family is very affluent my mother's family you know uh was you know uh i mean different relatives of different places but my mother was from inner city la and uh i eventually would marry a woman from the jordan Downs projects and watts um where i lived myself for about a year or so but growing up I um, had three native environments. You know, I spent uh, weekends with my mother's family and in uh, Inglewood in, in and in South L.A. I'd get on the bus with my, um, you know, with uh, my, my uh, young uncle and and got used to the idea that, you know, we wanted to stay away from the cops. We wanted to be careful walking through certain neighborhoods with the wrong color shoelaces on, because if we didn't, you know, if somebody was, uh, you know, repping uh, the wrong gang or something like that, we'd be in trouble with them. Um, over holidays, I'd go visit my grandparents um, in La Jolla, California, affluent coastal city in uh, San Diego, and um, would be with them in their house, multi-million-dollar uh, home, view of the ocean, a few blocks down the street from Mitt Romney's house, the one with the car elevator we used to talk about in the 2012 campaign. But then, from day to day, I lived in multicultural, middle-class Culver City. Uh, with the fourth most diverse school district in America. My friends were Korean and Indian and Jewish and, you know, black and Hispanic and and Arabic and so on and so forth. And um, the thing that I, you know, and so being a mixed kid in that environment on top of it all, I had um, always sort of a sense that people had starkly different experiences And within my own person, I was sort of a product of many different sort of, you know, cultures and experiences coming together. And it was always fairly easy for me to kind of see, you know, the legitimacy and at least the validity in people's views uh, and opinions on things, um, even if they couldn't see that in each other. And so I also often found myself serving as an interpreter or translator for people who thought that, you know, through a cultural difference of some kind or a social difference of some kind that that other person was just, you know, just a waste of time, a waste of breath or somebody who was mean or cruel or uncaring or whatnot. And I would tend to be like, well, no, but this is why they see it this way. And I can relate to that in a part of myself, you know. Um, And so I was always interested in politics, but I always sort of had this disposition to want to create understanding of politics because I sort of felt like if we all had a deeper understanding of the experiences and the unique, you know, kind of, Influences that cause us to see the world the way that we do, we would have a lot easier time you know seeing the good in each other and therefore establishing a basis for trust between one another and So you know I mean, I was always just the type of person to try and facilitate that anyway, and it eventually just kind of became my vocation in politics and you know led me to the work that I do here now with uh, the braver angels um So happy to talk a little bit about what Braver Angels actually does then. So uh, Braver Angels is America's largest grassroots bipartisan organization dedicated to the work of political depolarization. Uh, We are a membership organization. About 11,000 dues-paying members uh, across the country, about 80 or so local uh, bipartisan or cross-partisan alliances, things local local chapters. Um, we have programs at every level of government, from Congress all the way down to uh, municipalities and school board. Uh, we have programs on, you know, probably, you know, I don't know, maybe getting close to a hundred or so college campuses uh, across across the country. It might be a bit less than that, but it's a significant number. Um, we have a fledgling digital media network. I'm speaking to from one of the sets of the Brave Angels podcast as we as we speak. Um, but our, you know, our activity is, is chiefly sort of, you know, grassroots, um, Braver Angels started, um, before we were a formal organization, we were originally called Better Angels and then went through a, as in the Better Angels of Our Nature, which is a quote from Abraham Lincoln, then Braver Angels, his name changed, that came a little bit later. Um, we, um, uh, began, uh, sh- or at least the first bit of activity that would lead to the organization of, of Brave Angels, took place shortly after the 2016 election, where the founders of the organization, David Blank and Orrin, David Lapp and Bill Doherty, uh, brought together um, a group of about you know, 10 or 11 or so individuals who had just voted for Hillary Clinton and an equal number of folks who had just voted for Donald Trump. Uh, In South Lebanon, Ohio, a community that had basically sort of evenly split two into two, to see if the American people could still find some degree of common, you know, sort of respect for each other in the aftermath of what then was the most polarizing election, you know, in in recent uh, American history. Um, And uh, Bill Doherty is a professor of psychology and a foremost uh, family therapist, somebody who's extremely well regarded uh, in his Field a close colleague of mine, he had designed sort of a two-day structure, whereby through uh, guided exercises drawn from you know uh, family counseling, um, uh, these two sides would be able to not argue and debate politics, but sort of talk about through the prism of their of their personal experience why they see politics the way that they do, in a way that opened up sort of the channel for for understanding, and um, there was one sort of. Illustrative uh, relationship that emerged from that initial gathering uh, between an individual uh, named Greg Smith, who uh, was a, a former small town sheriff and construction worker and an evangelical Christian, and a fellow named uh, Kuyar Mustafi, uh who's a Persian uh, immigrant, uh, who's a leader in the local Democratic uh, County Party, um, and uh, I think a software uh, uh, engineer, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, there's a moment in the workshop where Greg began to say something along the lines of, you know, I can tell you my my problem with Islam in four letters, I, S, I, and before he got to add the last S to it, Kudar um, sort of gently interrupted and said, my friend, he said, I already know what you're going to say. He said, but my religion has been hijacked by people who don't share my values. He said, can you think of, you know, people in your religion who've done the same? And Greg actually didn't have any difficulty thinking of people who, Claimed, you know, the faith of Christianity, whose values had nothing to do with with his own, and so sort to of, sort of created a space of understanding between the two of them. And by the end of it, um, they had developed this deep bond, and they had pledged to everybody else in the group that they wanted to continue the support of you know, of bridging these divides, and uh, they made a commitment to each other. Uh, uh, Kuyar committed to pay a visit uh, to Greg's church some Sunday. And Greg committed to to join for a service at Kuyar's Mosque um, and to get to know each other more deeply in that way. And so NPR, you know, picked up that story at a certain point. And what happened was, you know, the sort of very first um, Brave Angels uh, crew assembled, got on a bus. Bill developed a condensed version of that initial sort of, you know, family marriage counseling for republicans and democrats workshop we call it a red blue workshop and they literally went from state to state on the bus sort of as first responders hearing from people who were saying that their communities were in crisis their families were in crisis because political differences were destroying their ability to interact with each other and so this first uh, braver angels crew went from place to place holding these workshops but also training volunteers to be able to continue the workshops after they left and that first wave of folks who are trained in moderating those those early workshops uh, became sort of the first crop of Braver Angels members and volunteers. And that has grown, you know, that has grown over time. So, you know, now our programs are dramatically sort of diversified. We have sort of this sort of family counseling style red-blue workshop. We have workshops that are aimed at helping people to communicate more empathetically teaching actual commun- communication skills um for crossing the divide we have workshops that are aimed at sort of giving people tools to regulate their own internal conversations helping people not be sort of to reside psychologically in a place of sort of you know tribal um animosity towards other folks we have workshops uh, and programs aimed at helping people to communicate over race to helping people uh, communicate uh Across geographical um, uh, differences of experience, uh, uh, and um, the um, Brave Rangers Debates program, which is a debates program that is focused not on winning or losing, but on what we call the communal pursuit of truth—a mm-hmm. um, program mm-hmm. in which the focus is not on beating your you know opponent or you know owning the opposition. But giving voice to not only the reasons why you believe something, but also the ways in which you might have some doubt, you know, giving people even space to change their minds in the course of an argument or debate, if they want to, but centering the pursuit of truth as opposed to rhetorical victory—that's been incredibly popular, sort of offering across, uh, you know, campuses across the country, and that was designed by my uh, colleague uh, April Cornfield, formerly uh, April April Lawson, uh, who's uh, previously an uh, editorial assistant to Dave Brooks, the New York Times someone who founded something called the Weave the Social Fabric Project at the Aspen Institute, uh, brilliant thinker and writer and speaker. Um, and so, um, you know, um, we also uh, have just launched something called Braver Politics, which is an initiative to seed our workshops in a systematic way at every level of government. Um, we've been working with the Select Committee for the modernization of, of Congress to sort of, you know, multiply these workshops um, in the House and in the Senate Um, We've got friends at at every level of government, uh, including many retired elected officials. It's kind of easier to get them on board (laughs) than currently elected sometimes. Um, But um, we're moving in all these different directions. We even have a singer-songwriter community, about 150 uh, musicians and artists and so forth, um, using music uh, as a means of sort of bridging the divide and innovating programs uh, along those lines. Uh, And so our work is sort of broad and diverse in that way. And the idea is to create sort of a systematic sort of reinforcement uh, to depolarization and to the building out of empathy and understanding in our political discourse uh, in the face of all of the other sort of systematized kind of incentives that take us in the other direction. Right. So that is the work.
0: Thanks so much, John. I think this is a great place to take our break. Uh, And when we get back, I'll talk to you a little bit. We're going to add some Adam Smith to the conversation. (laughs) Okay, great. Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Peter Jaworski, Randy T. Simmons, and Vincent Geloso. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back to the curious task. I'm speaking with John Wood Jr. today. Um, so before the break, I want to really, you talked a little bit about being an interpreter, understanding experiences. I want to drill into that a little bit because I think it's so important to the conversation we're having today. Um, You know, I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast that you're a fan of Adam Smith, as am I. And, um, you know, one of Smith's main points is to show how important it is to see things through the eyes of others, to have sympathy for the perspective of others. Um, I spoke earlier this month with Sarah Squire from Liberty Fund about how literature allows us to do that and to subsequently bring people together. Uh, In your opinion, what is the advantage of human experience when figuring out how to bring people together? I I, I suspect you think it's, it's important and I'd like to hear more about it.
1: Yeah, uh, psychologist Jonathan Haidt uh says that the human mind is not a logic processor but a story processor or something or words to words to that direct effect. And um, you know, I, I think that the thing is that um as human beings, for all our differences, we can only be so different from one another. And um anything that you feel I likely have some capacity to feel myself, particularly if I'm able to sort of observe you in the process of sort of, you know, going through your experience or replicating kind of the the phenomenon of your experience. And so, you know, when you tell me a story um, that effectively gives voice to what you've been through, you know, if if I'm in a place to really be able to listen and hear, what happens is that I wind up sort of experiencing it with you, I mean, if you have an experience of, you know, maybe losing a parent at a young age or going through a divorce, or, you know, losing a job or a home or, or, you know, winning the lottery or falling in love or, you know, or achieving some, some long, you know, strive for goal, um, you know, whether it's, it's something uh, sad or, 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 or triumphant, um, your experiences begin to sort of map sort of map on to my own sort of body of sensations in a way that allows me to feel to some limited degree um what you feel and that gives me a window in to to your experience but also a bit of a deeper sense of who you may be as a human being who you may be as an individual vice versa of course and so you know in having some relationship to your experience processed through my own feelings, I am able to identify with you as opposed to sort of, you know, really in opposition to, to you. And um, it makes it impossible not to sort of, you know, humanize you uh, in a way that is likely to make it easier for me to listen to your point of view with, with greater patience, with greater understanding. And to the extent to which I can see you in myself, it's perhaps, if I have any sort of positive regard for myself at all, likely to be the case that even if I have some moral disagreement with you, I'd nevertheless sort of see you as being maybe like myself, somebody who's got the capacity for human goodness and even sort of change and redemption, maybe, you know? And so these are all bases upon which trust can be built, goodwill can be built. Um, Hope and optimism for for human transformation can be can be uh, established um, in the absence of those sort of empathetic connections through the sharing of experience through the sharing of stories it's easier for me to look at you as sort of an alien kind of entity you know uh, and to not have any kind of human investment in you uh, in the bible it it identifies um, sort of you know the the um, So the great moral commandment for human relationships is being our loving one another as we love ourselves. And I think it's easy to sort of misunderstand a little bit of the nuance in that statement, because you might say, well, you should love other people as much as you love yourself. That's not quite the message that I take. When you love somebody as you love yourself, it's sort of, it's sort of in a sense sort of loving somebody as if they were an extension of yourself. Right. You know? So in other words, like, if we were connected in a body, you know, um, if something were to, you know, prick you, I would, I would feel it just the way if you know, something cuts my finger, it's going to get to my brain, you know? Um, it's that kind of connection that I think is being sort of pointed to there. And I think that what Smith identifies as sort of some of the mechanics by which that sort of works, uh, the ways in which sort of, you know, uh, human, um, you know, human, um, uh, sympathy and shared feeling are sort of sort of triggered and um you know but it's it's the the shared sense of of um goodwill i guess sort of extending through a shared sense of our human commonality that presents itself as sort of the antidote to our social divisions in the end
0: yeah i think that's really important and you i've heard you uh, mention in the past something called patriotic empathy can you elaborate on that a little bit
1: Yeah, that's sort of an original phrase within Braver Angels is actually a phrase that I coined. And basically what that gets at is sort of this idea that your love for your country is demonstrated by your by your care and concern for your for your fellow for your fellow Americans. Right. Um, I think that it's possible. And in fact, you might have some people argue at least that you've got some folks in American life who say they love the American people but don't love the country, and then you have people who say that they love the country but don't demonstrate that in anything they feel for, for the American people, at least Americans who are very different from them. And so these are things that I think ought to be brought together. And, you know, the phrase you can sort of tell is meant to sort of appeal to the moral foundations of left and right a bit. I and mean, so, you know, to go back to Jonathan Haidt's work you know sort of talks about how liberal psychology tends towards a moral focus on compassion and equality. conservative psychology's got a stronger sort of focus uh on sort of loyalty and tradition, sanctity and so forth um but yeah, I think that patriotism and empathy are are qualities that ultimately ought to be joined because you know i mean and I can get biblical again, if you'll forgive me for for doing so, but sort of like that. That, uh, that uh, verse goes, which says that, you know, he who says he loves God but hates his fellow man is a liar. Who hates his brother is a liar, right? Um, yes, our love for the idea of America has to be attended by a love for, for our people. And if we have a love for the American people, then that also ought to extend, I think, uh, to a love for what the American project is and could be, um, at least, uh, at its best, right. Uh, that we should be committed to sort of talking up, you know, the, the greater sort of expression of American idealism and to define what the country truly is in our heart, uh, according to that. Right. Um, because that's a way of inspiring us to continue to reach for that, you know, uh, and to center, you know, uh, a more sort of, you know, uh, a more sort of uh, ethical and, um, and um, you know, sort of fully realized sense of the American project uh, in a way that, you know, really does speak to, to the better angels of, of our nature, you know. Sort of have to choose to do that, but we um, are seeking to create space for people who love the country, who love its people, uh, and who are willing to join these these moral values in the same sort of project to to heal the country you know so that's that's the significance of that phrase.
0: So uh, if we were to sort of want to do more of this depolarization work in our own lives and in everyday life um, something that you've talked about in the past is uh, a formula that you you all use um, in our own communication that we can use in our own communications when we can't when we try to tackle depolarization our own communities um and a lot of people who listen to this podcast are in a position to do that or just in their own daily lives mm-hmm. um you know it, it's made up of an acronym lapp or listen acknowledge pivot perspective i really like right. that i'd love it if you could just quickly walk us through those four and uh what we're supposed to be doing there
1: yeah so the lap formula <laughs> so i'll take you through each step so listening you know um is is where it starts you listen to the point of view of the other party the other person and you listen not to respond but you listen to understand you listen to genuinely hear right and so it's an earnest listening that is not merely tactical because in so many of our conversations so many of our arguments in politics you know political debates uh we're listening to identify the weak points in the other person's argument so we can respond in a way that you know cripples their cripples their their argument, but what that effectively does is, I mean, maybe good for, for for TV, but it doesn't tend to persuade the other person. It just puts them in sort of a, in a rhetorical combat kind of situation, and by the end of it, people tend to be more polarized than they were when the conversation began, and thus less able to constructively sort of engage each other in in democracy. Um, so you listen to hear, uh, you don't listen to respond. Acknowledging um, comes with um comes with the capacity to paraphrase, essentially. So let's say we're having a conversation uh about um about abortion. And let's say that um I'm uh, somebody uh you know on on the right, and you're somebody on, on the left on that issue. Um, I might listen to you and and from polarized vantage point, hear you talk about your politics and say, well, you're somebody who doesn't care about unborn babies, right? Um, But if I'm listening closely to what you're saying, I'm probably going to respond in a way that if I'm acknowledging what you're saying, I'm acknowledging it in terms that you yourself would recognize as authentically reflective of what it is you think and feel. And so rather than saying you don't care about unborn babies, I might say something along the lines of, you know, you have a different opinion than I do as to where when life begins. But what you believe is that this, the autonomy, a woman's right to choose, um, is, is, a, is an intrinsic value, or a sacred value, uh, or a right that all people are entitled to. It's not that you hate unborn babies. It's that you love women and you value the right to autonomy, right? And the same thing goes the other way. You might say to a pro life person, well, you know, you hate women or you don't think that women should be able to choose, you know, what they do with their bodies, but the truth is more likely to be in the direction, uh, if you're really listening to a person, of no, I think that the lives of unborn children are sacred and that they have a right to this life, right? Uh, It's not coming from a position of hate, it's coming from a position of affirmation of the value of something, right? And so being able to articulate that, to acknowledge that perspective, in terms that the person or himself would resonate with shows that you are listening, shows that you have actually taken the time and the mental energy to understand what that person really thinks, what that person really feels. You know, doesn't mean that you agree, but it means that person can feel heard. And when that person feels heard, they're far more likely to think, okay, this person isn't twisting my language to get over on me, this person's really having a conversation with me, and that makes it a little bit easier to give in to having a little bit of trust for the intentions uh, of of yourself for the person on the other side so that 's the acknowledgement part of it. Then comes the pivot and it's it 's the simplest part of it, but it 's a very important part uh, it 's where you introduce, you begin to introduce your own point of view but but what you do is you intru- you, you, you do that by um, by framing, introducing the fact that there's a dis, disagreement coming through a through a frame that allows your humility to be to be visible. So we talk a lot about the difference between eye statements and truth statements uh, in this part of the work. Uh, people will oftentimes talk about their different political opinions as if they were facts, and maybe they are facts, right? But people will say something. Like, it's just, you know, like, well, like Barack Obama was the best president ever for, for health care. Like, you know, like, you know, Donald Trump clearly, like, you know, the best president, you know, for the economy. Um, but when you put your point of view forward as if it was just like a self-evident truth, you know, you put people back on the defensive because then it becomes a contest over who's right and who's wrong. again But if you are to say something along the lines of, you know, well, actually I, I, so let's take back to, you know, abortion, like, you know, so you have for, for you, you know, life begins at, um, you know, life, uh, doesn't begin at conception. And and what's more important here is the right to choose. Um, I have a different experience with this issue, you know, or actually have a different feeling about it. Um, you know, I, I've been through something that kind of causes me to see this a different way. When you introduce the I, what it does is it humanizes the difference. It humanizes the disagreement. You know, um, you're not immediately responding with this is why you're wrong. You know, it becomes an invitation into understanding. And into that invitation, you know, comes, of course, a reckoning with whatever the difference in the opinion is. But the, the door that's opened is a door towards interpersonal connection. And whatever the difference of opinion is, it's processed through that interpersonal connection. So when I say I have a different uh, way of looking at this, you know, um, I'm introducing my perspective, you know, with a humble recognition of the fact that it is, um, it is subjective. Even if what I'm saying might, uh, might objectively be right in some way, it's still something that's coming through my own subjective sort of human lens. And so the pivot is just as simple as that. It's just as simple as saying, um, I have a different experience or I have a different point of view, right? Um, as opposed to saying, you know, this is why you're wrong, or this is what the truth is, or well, but the fact is, is F Y, you know, you know, X, Y, and Z. And then the final part of it, perspective, is just offering your opinion, you know. Now, you could start with your you know jump jumping right past the acknowledgement and the pivot and go right from the you know from the listening to the perspective you know uh but when you sacrifice those middle two steps, you don't allow the other person to be heard, and you fail to take the opportunity to humanize your own disagreement right and in the absence of those two things comes the absence of trust you know or the absence of a sense that the focus here is one that's based on building understanding and it reduces the interaction to one that's simply a zero sum rhetorical conflict you know and so that's that's the that's the pattern of communication that we see to short circuit uh with this sort of these sorts of techniques
0: that's all that's really great and i want to i want to end the conversation today by just talking a little bit more about trust so you said that the erosion of trust has occurred in America between different groups of people. And a part of that is that people just can't agree on facts. Um, That seems difficult. Like, you know, if if, if you're saying that the fracturing of the American identity can't be repaired by just agreeing on facts, but on building trust, um, you know, it it seems very difficult because both sides see each other as an enemy and they're working for the destruction of America. Like this is the kind of perspective that Mm -hmm. I have, as a Canadian looking in. So when you hear the two sides talking, they're talking about each other as kind of monsters, you know, (laughs) that are seeking the Mm -hmm. destruction of their, of their lifestyles um, or the way that like America supposedly is, whatever that means. Um, And, you know, if if there's that erosion of trust, it seems pretty scary to me. I'm wondering if you can elaborate on your thoughts on, you know, building back that trust in America.
1: Yes. Well, you know i i mean first of all it is it is very difficult of course you know um i mean we have our differences for for many legitimate reasons we have many good reasons for distrusting each other and the truth is is that the more we do distrust each other the more reasons we will give each other the more good reasons we will give each other to distrust (laughs) each other, right? Because, you know, if I don't trust you, what what reason do I have to play by the rules in any of our disagreements, you know? Um, I become less trustworthy as a result of distrusting you, because that informs my actions, and vice versa. Um, I do think, though, that part of the issue here is that people on the left just think that there's no justifiable reason for being a Trump supporter other than the fact that you're a racist or whatever. And people on the right will feel like, you know, there's no justifiable reason for supporting BLM unless you're an anti-white, anti-American radical or whatever. And, um, you know, and the truth is, is that there's a whole lot of, you know, valid sort of like life experience that, that goes into, you know, these politics, right? Uh, even if we might ultimately come down much more on one side than than the other, um, and so I do think that there's a lot of work to be done in terms of giving people a good faith representation of sort of the general kind of you know depth of experience that goes into some of these different points of view, so that we can begin humanizing group to group. I mean, you know, the MAGA movement was powered by a lot of you know poor and working class white folks who I think have been marginalized in much of, you know, American life, American culture, these are people who, you know, don't tend to want, on people don't tend to want on university campuses, who are not, you know, put up as, like, the, the desired representatives of, like, American culture and Hollywood or the entertainment industry. People who uh, whose, you know, ancestors were looked down upon by, you know, uh, wealthy white southern plantation owners and northern Yankees uh, alike. People who Depending on where you are, if you're in Appalachia or if you're in the Rust Belt, have seen economic opportunities dry up, go overseas, um, found themselves underserved, undereducated by American institutions, and culturally sort of looked down upon, even within the Republican Party. These are people who felt like you know the Mitt Romneys and John McCain's of the GOP are not people who had any real respect uh, for them. Donald Trump came along and said, "I love you." You are my mm-hmm. people. I'm going to fight for you. Fight for your jobs. I even kind of talk like you. I've got a lot of your own grievances, mm-hmm. even though I'm a billionaire and so forth. I know what it's like to be talked about by the cultural elites and so forth. I'm one of you. Well, of course, you're going to gravitate towards somebody like that. You know, he's coming. He's coming forward as somebody who really represents you. And on the other hand, of course, you know, I mean, people, you know, many people on the right felt like, well, wait a second. You now there's not some. Law enforcement genocide of African Americans, you know, in this in this country, the statistics don't show that. These riots in the street, you know, this is just an, an excuse for you know for 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 crazy bitter people with the victim mentality to to try and turn American society upside down. Um, but you know, I mean, just to speak from the context of the African American experience, yes, you know, we had a civil rights movement that delivered greater equality, greater opportunity. Uh, to particularly a segment of the black American population. And, you know, I'm sort of more representative of that in my own experience. I grew up in an integrated multicultural sort of community. And, you know, with the ending of Jim Crow segregation and the advent of the Voting Rights Act, uh, you know, a much greater degree of dignity and, and legal equality, you know, was given to, to black to Black Americans. But even at the time those things happened, you know, those, those reforms were most particularly, you know, most, most salience in, in, in the South where the Jim Crow regime, you know, was uh, you know, was sort of sort of uh, hegemonic. Um, but even at that time, most African-Americans were no longer living, you know, in, in, in the rural South. Most African-Americans were living in big cities, most of them in the North and in the West. Uh, poverty was an issue, and poverty was not impacted at all. On the other hand, as you come out from the 1960s and the Civil Rights Movement, you had the advent of of crack cocaine and heroin. Uh, in the absence of manufacturing jobs, which went overseas, or you know, agricultural jobs in other cases that had been insourced through you know, immigrant labor and so forth, so you had the dwindling of economic opportunities. You had the advent of of the drug economy. You have the welfare uh, state, which, in the absence of economic opportunity, I would argue, sort of incentivized kind of uh, an economy of dependence because there weren't as many, you know, means by which African-Americans could be financially sort of independent. Uh, and so then you have, you know, sort of the growth of, of, of crime that brings with it all sorts of horrors and violence, uh, but then precipitates sort of, a, you know, this, this massive escalation of the police state, which takes millions of African-Americans over the course of years into prison and locks them away to the point to where many of them are only getting out the last, you know, several years here. Their American experience is one that has been defined by these last few decades, where poor black people who were already poor in the nineteen sixties remain poor generation after generation, not just poor, but subject to violence, subject to harassment from, from the police, subjected to underperforming schools. And then you turn around and say, Well why don't you guys salute the flag, right? Uh, slavery ended back in eighteen sixty five. But the truth is is that the experience of marginalization and oppression never ended for for at least a great sort of underclass of, of black America, which represents an enormous portion of it. Um and so, you know, but how many people understand the depth of those experiences? You know, how many people when we think of MAGA, when we think of BLM, are thinking, you know, of you know of of the white of, of that that Appalachian you know, white kid who, you know, grew up uh, in a broken home, uh, having to deal with, you know, opioids and, and maybe an absent father. And black kid who had to deal with crack cocaine and gangs and, and, and underperforming schools and very similar circumstances. The populist movements in America are powered by that sort of grievance. But we reduce the politics of people who vote in these different directions to nothing more than sort of the least charitable interpretations of, you know, why you have a MAGA or why you have a BLM in the first place. And I think that if we had a deeper understanding of what powers, you know, these movements like legitimately, you know, um, there would be a greater sort of space for us to say, okay, how can we get at the real roots of people suffering rather than just trying to knock down one another's political arguments as if that's really kind of like, you know, the answer to what's troubling Americans in the first place.
0: I think, um, I think that's a great answer. And, you know, I'm wondering how much of this lack of trust is really new, right? Like, there's a temptation to say things like, this is an unprecedented time in American history of when it comes to trust. Uh, But we can all remember McCarthyism being an issue of trust, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, distrusting everyone's intentions, uh, distrusting one another. Um, And America did seem to be able to move past that era in history, uh, for the most part. And do you think that we're going to be able to move past this very difficult time in American history or is conflict inevitable? I, I, I feel like I know what your answer is going to be, but I, I, want, I do want you to spell it out a little bit.
1: <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, distrust is a part of the human condition. It's certainly a part of the condition of you know, political society. I mean, we're going to have reasons to distrust each other. and Yeah. You know, McCarthyism, we can name any number of other, you know, sectarian or ethnic you know, you know conflicts political conflicts that that'll exemplify that um i do think that the moment we're in is unique certainly on the level of partisan distrust i mean we haven't seen anything like this since you know around the civil war so um yeah i mean i just on the basis of democrats hating republicans like you know it's that that's certainly you know since the mid-20th century you know the polling so as long as there's been Polling, you know, it's 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 shown just just a decline that really started to accelerate. I think, you know, maybe post Watergate or whatever. They, even then, I mean, it's the nineteen nineties where this gets starts to pick up steam. It used to be that something like five percent of Americans in the in the fifties or sixties cared at all whether their kids married a Republican or a Democrat. They just didn't want them to marry a Catholic or a Protestant if they were, you know, <laughs> religious Now that's totally different. People would care less, you know, what the religion of their child's spouses, as long as they're. they're political party you know um and so on the level of straightforward political polarization uh we're in a unique sort of moment conflict is inevitable but i do think that we will find our way beyond this just because i think that the things that need to happen will happen i mean i think that you know american society uh is one at the end of the day that has a lot of resources both in sort of religious culture and in secular humanism for understanding the differences that exist between us in a way that allows us to humanize each other and and find uh, and find common cause, I mean that's part of the promise of liberalism in some sense that you know we see the value of the individual, and within that there ought to be space for us to understand the differing sorts of journeys of of individuals and individual groups perhaps to allow us to come to a greater understanding of each other. Um, you know the Holy Spirit, the love of Christ, and the Gospels is supposed to be something that, you know, theologies differ. But the Christianity of Martin Luther King Jr., the Christianity of Billy Graham, um, you know, these were traditions that were meant to say that to be a child of God is to transcend race, to transcend certainly, you know, uh, political party or what have you. Uh, while Dr. King was fighting to integrate lunch counters, Billy Graham was leading the first integrated revivals in the South. Uh, you know, and he was, you know, very much sort of a product of, of, of the South and of the evangelical culture of the South that sort of characteris- characterizes sort of you know the cultural base of of that of that region. And yet, you know, there's sort of a sweeping spirit uniting black and white alike in that sort of you know that sort of religious. Uh, context, Um, if these impulses start to sort of kick back in, you know, I think that we can disenthrall ourselves from sort of the political idolatry that we're suffering under in a way that allows us to sort of come back to a calling deeper human commonalities that we have. And even in our differences, to be able to contextualize them to where we remember that our differences are still necessary parts of a successful American project. Um, we just have to do the work, as people as people say, and I think that you know uh, none of none of this none of the positive possibilities here will will occur unless you know you have folks begin to work together to build uh, to build uh, and reform institutions and to establish social and, and cultural and political relationships that are based upon identifying the need for this transformation in our mutual well-regard for one another, um, that that has to be the starting point for any enduring cultural reform in America that that can sustain, you know, the democratic order for any length of time to come. And I think people are waking up to the need for that. We're all just trying to figure out how do you do it. But, you know, but we are trying to figure it out, right? And I think that the worse the problem becomes, the more people will come to understand that that's the way we need to go. So, in some sense, the problem itself contains the seeds of its solution.
0: So, my last question before we go to our formal wrap up is: Do are you seeing any positive signs of improvement or movement towards improvement in the work that you're doing and the people that you're seeing and talking with?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, our work uh, our work continues uh, to grow. Um, Philanthropy is becoming more more involved, more resources are coming into this sort of work. Uh, more and more, you know, politicians and, and established interests are looking to sort of support this sort of work and get involved. Uh, you know, you've got celebrities like Chris Evans, Captain America, you know, and and uh, other sorts of cultural figures who seem to be wanting to, you know, sort of be a part of, of these sorts of of efforts uh, but more than anything, just sort of day by day in local communities uh, across the country, and also on college campuses and elsewhere, you know, you just find ordinary Americans who see the problem, want to be a part of the solution, and you know, many if not most of them doing things in their own lives and communities that are not necessarily formally connected to the work of brave angels or anybody else, but just represent organic, you know, efforts to kind of cross uh, cross the divide. So you know, uh, we're not starting from nowhere we just haven't come to the place to where these these positive um cultural you know antibodies the, the this spirit of goodwill has sort of sort of began to stitch together kind of all of these different sorts of activities into a larger more visible movement but i'm in a position to really see it begin to sort of bubble up right and um you know um that's something that i think we have to work towards, but that ultimately, again, like organically uh, is going to, the momentum is going to continue to build behind that. And, um, you know, I, I do not think that the future is just going to be outright defined by, you know, the, the, the partisan left or the partisan right or what have you. I think we're going to see a new current in the cultural conversation that is healing, that is constructive. And I think that both sides are going to have to reckon with and adapt to that um, when the time comes.
0: So, John, we've talked about a lot. Uh, Let's try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me ask you, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether or not we can get along?
1: Well, I think that people take from this conversation the fact that we can get along, one, if we have a positive, goodwill, one, if we rest in goodwill towards one another, if we harbor goodwill towards one another, right? The philosophy of nonviolence teaches that you have to love your opponent. doesn't mean that you have to like them, right? But you have to mean them well, both to free yourself from the albatross and judgment and fear of the other, but also to make your communication authentic in terms of saying to people on the other side that, you know, you have a reason to trust me even if we disagree, that you can trust my intentions are good. Um, and that, too, that That goodwill can be impactful if we have the tools and how we communicate. If we have the understanding and how we organize as to how to as to how to operationalize that, how to how to make it something that's manifest. Right. So you have to have the good intention, and then you have to know how to express that good intention in terms of how you communicate and how you behave in politics. And if we uh, become wiser in how we do that you know, more charitable in how we think about each other uh, and wiser in how we communicate with each other, then we can indeed get along. And and better than that, you know, uh, we can build a democracy that lasts for the next generation and the generation after that.
0: John Wood Jr., thanks so much for such an interesting conversation today.
1: Thank you, Sabine. It's always a pleasure.
0: Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode is produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Alchidiak and Eric Sikang. Our executive producer is Matt Buffton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lydney Vopenford. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Sabine Alchidiak. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.